welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. On this podcast, we normally focus on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, on this episode, we're going on a special mission and taking a look at the Twilight Zone from Gold Key Comics. If there weren't copyright rules and stuff like that, we might have opened up the show with the the music that we all know and love, but why take chances? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So for this special mission, I'm going to let Rich talk to you about the cover details of the comic in question. Okay. The Twilight Zone comic is based on the TV show hosted by Rod Serling, of course, which ran for 92 issues between November 1962 and May 1982. Published by Gold Key, it continued the earlier 1962 Dell series. And into the cover detail, it's a painted cover by George Wilson. Now only 12 cents in the upper right corner and the Gold Key logo in the upper left. A black and white photo of Rod Serling looks out at you over the comic's title. A white, bearded scientist wearing a pith helmet and carrying a flashlight enters a subterranean room to see a beautiful Egyptian woman dressed in clothes from the time of the pharaohs. She casually restrains a leopard from attacking. On the bottom of the cover, a scientist is lured to his doom by a centuries-old Egyptian painting. The back cover is a pinup of the same scene without the title, photo, or other distractions. The date and release is May 1963 on sale February 14th, 1963. Painted cover is awesome. Something about it reminds me of Johnny Quest, which doesn't actually come out on TV until the following year. Yeah, agreed on the awesomeness front. Uh, Gold Key was known for these absolutely gorgeous painted covers, and this one is no exception. They were also known for filling the pages between those covers with very stiff, boring artwork for the actual stories. We'll see about that. The uh, trade dress-free pinup on the back cover that you mentioned is great, but, you know, ripping the cover apart just to have a cheap poster? Yeah, you know, maybe some savvy kid would ask for the unsold back cover from the newsstand, but I doubt that ever happened. But I do remember these covers in particular jumping off the rack at me as a kid. Like Anything by Gold Key just stood out. It looked different than anything else out there. So right off, this is a typical Gold Key comic and that the cover blows you away and you're going to snatch it up and see what the heck's going on. So you open that cover. And I'll uh, I'll go for uh, the first little mini feature on the other side of that gorgeous painted cover is Keys of Knowledge, Roads and Vehicles, number three, Primitive Transportation, art by Joe Serta. And just to get this out of the way, we don't know who wrote anything in this entire book. Uh, the, the writing credits just, they don't seem to exist. It's it, it, with all the resources at our at our fingertips. No one knows. So Gold Key did not care about that, apparently. Now, this feature, it's one of a series of information features in Gold Key Comics. Collect the whole series for useful knowledge. We got five panels showing and describing how mankind moved loads from hauling them himself and drafting horses and dogs to inventing sleds and using log rollers. So this is, you know, th- this is your nice educational piece here. It's, it's, it's schoolhouse rock, gold key comic style. One of my favorite things on this page is the quote, man was probably the first beast of burden. I mean, has that really changed? I, I like that. And you can just hear that line in the Rod Serling cadence. Can't you, Rich? Uh, 
I don't think Rod would have bothered, you know. I like thinking of man dropping it. I can't really do it, but it's like man was probably the first beast of burden. Yeah, th- this is this is the other reason why you keep me on the staff because I do an <laughs> infinitely better rod than you do. <laughs> I do all kinds of voices, man, but for some, but reason, well. <laughs> for some reason, Rod has never been someone I could get. So also they mention ancient Egypt in this little informational piece. So hey, that's on the cover. It's all connected, man. We got a theme going here. So this could have been a little. Is this throwaway. a framing sequence? <clears throat> kind of. Yeah, this uh. it, it's certainly more <laughs> of one than we've gotten in the last couple of weird war tales in a way, you know. So I actually kind of dug this and there's a sequel to it coming at the end of the issue. Spoiler alert. But before that, we get to the first actual story in the book, which Rich and Rod Serling are going to tell you about. Yeah. Oh, come on. It's the Weird Warriors podcast. I had to select a Twilight Zone that had something to do with war in it, right? This is called The Last Battle. Pencils by Mike Sikowski. Inks by Mike Peppy. Pep? I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's an 11-page story. In a desperate attempt to get help for his entrapped company, PFC George Rogers is about to become part of the strangest rescue mission of World War II. Synopsis is as follows. A shell blows Rogers off his feet and stuns him. He comes to to see a sergeant in a strange uniform looming over him. The sergeant helps Rogers to his feet and takes him to his unit. I never saw your type of uniform before. Are you in some kind of special troops? Rogers asks. Special troops, the sergeant replies. Yes, you might call my outfit something special. A strange scene unfolds as the two men walk. They enter a World War I-type trench and enter the command bunker. The sergeant shows Rogers to the commanding officer, who asks Rogers where he came from. As a corpsman dresses Rogers' head wound, he tells the captain his story. His division arrived at Cherbourg two weeks ago and were trucked to Belgium. They arrive at the front in the Ardennes at almost the same time the German assault in the Battle of the Bulge begins. The outnumbered Americans reel back to a farmhouse and repulse one attack. The Germans start to shell the house, and the Americans' radio is dead. It was only a matter of time until they're overrun. Disobeying orders, Rogers slips out of the house to try to get help. He successfully eludes German patrols, but a close shell knocks him out where the sergeant found him. The captain, the captain is happy Rogers stumbled in. He can show them where the fighting is. Rogers is confused, though. I have the strangest feeling about all this, almost like a dream. Your uniforms and gear look so old. Don't worry about that, son. We've been out of contact for a long time, but we're still a crack fighting outfit. Rogers changes into a uniform that matches that of the others and leads them into no man's land. The other men are excited. Here's our chance to settle an old score with the Bosch. Let's do the job right this time. Moving through the fog with the captain, the two men are captured by a German patrol who are captured in turn by the other Americans emerging from the mist. Rogers' trapped unit is almost out of ammo when the rescuers perform a bayonet charge on the enemy from behind. The Germans break, and those that aren't killed surrender. The trapped GIs emerge from the farmhouse to discover that both their rescuers and their German prisoners have vanished. The only one they find is Rogers, unconscious from a wound. Where'd he get that old helmet and coat? Who were those soldiers? The sergeant picks up the helmet and rifle. This is 1944, and I know it's impossible. But the bayonet charge, those soldiers, and the gear are straight out of World War II. It's almost as if the lost battalion came back to life. A battalion of American troops, cut off and massacred by the Germans in 1918. 
couldn't rest in peace until it avenged itself. Impossible, Sergeant. Not in the Twilight Zone. We probably can use that much. Yeah, probably, yes. (laughs) So I'll lunge right into um, uh, the uh, combination Killjoy was here, History Minute. During World War I, in October 1918, a battalion of attacking U.S. troops of the 77th Division got encircled by German troops in the Argonne Forest. Dubbed the Lost Battalion, for five days they held out against furious German assaults as their own would-be rescuers were also repulsed. They were never lost. Everyone knew where they were. When finally relieved, only 194 of the roughly 500 men were unhurt. The rest were killed, wounded, missing, or prisoners. Seven medals of honor were awarded to men either holding out or those trying to rescue them. The commander of the Lost Battalion, Major Charles Whittlesey, was one of them. He was also selected to be a pallbearer when the unknown soldier was interred at Arlington. Now, just going on a little little bit of a sidebar on that, that duty probably uh, triggered something in him because not only days after that, he booked a cruise on the SS Toola, it was a, a fruit company ship, to Cuba, and he threw himself over the side. He just, he disappeared without a trace. So he is, uh, his remains were never recovered. And his, actually, he has a memorial stone in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which I went to recently. So I, I took pictures of that, and those pictures will be in the album afterwards. Oh my God, man! I lived right out there for four years, and uh, yeah, it was, it was something that. I just, I just, I just happened to look, look because I was re- doing the research on this. I just happened to type in Whittles. And I'm like, oh, where's he buried? I'm like, oh, Pittsfield. And I'm like, whoa, he's not actually buried there. He threw himself over the side in a suicide. Okay, and, and right after he was a pallbearer, so you know that must have triggered something, you know, the PTSD and everything. So, but to continue, um, <laughs> now all that being said. The Argonne Forest is about 100 miles south of where the Bullish fighting was, but it's hard to kill Joy anything in the Twilight Zone. Also, I'd be willing to say Rogers' division was probably the 106th. They were a brand new division to the front in December of 1944, and they were steamrolled by the Germans when the attack began. They hadn't even had time to unpack their artillery. Two of the division's three regiments were destroyed, killed, captured, missing, wounded. Notably, Future author Kurt Vonnegut was one of those captured from the 106th Division. His experiences as a POW was a direct inspiration for Slaughterhouse-Five. So lunging right into comments and combinations as if that wasn't enough. You know, we just had a story a few episodes ago about World War II soldiers going back in time to the Argonne Forest to help a World War I one. Now we have World War I soldiers going forward in time to help World War II ones. Great story. Always loved the, the dead couldn't rest until they were avenged angle i love there's a couple of panels in the story too that are just great i love this there's a few silhouetted orange and black panels of them going over the top and um there's two of them of a bayonet charge you get backlit silhouettes that's really great too yeah man like uh like we get right to it like well so much for the stiff boring art reputation that gold key has out there sure the page layouts aren't exactly dynamic but the art within these panels is great. Sikowski is proven veteran who knows how to do it and brings it on every page of this book, like every page of this story. I particularly like the panels featuring scenes in the rain or mist, starting with the soldiers outside the farmhouse, uh, page five, panel one. I like the story too, but it 
did seem like they skimped on explaining who the lost battalion was for readers like me who might not have known, but Hey, we got That's rich to take, yeah, we got rich to take <laughs> care of that. Like, you know, 50 something years later to explain it to me just in time for rereading this issue and going, Oh, lost battalion. So, so really off script here, man. Like, so the lost battalion was never lost. Everyone knew where they were. They so just couldn't get out. So even though people must have heard of them back in 63 for them to just drop the reference in this story, like even dropping that reference, it's it's kind of inaccurate in that they were never lost. I mean, they were just called that in the common parlance or. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, they were the lost battalion. They were were cut off and they just couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't, there would be rescuers couldn't get to them and they couldn't fight their way out. It was all they could do to just to defend themselves against the Germans. Our aircraft would fly overhead and just try to drop medical supplies and ammunition and food and stuff like that with you know, varying degrees of success, obviously, in 1918. One of, the, one of the stories about the Lost Battalion was they were getting shelled by their uh, own artillery, and they needed to have our guys stop, obviously. And they had a couple of um, carrier pigeons. And uh, they, they kept, you know, they, they sent carrier pigeons out to try to get the, their own, our own guys to stop. Of course, the Germans knew what carrier pigeons were, so they'd shoot at the carrier pigeons to try to shoot them down. And there was one, I think it was called uh, Machari, I believe it was. The bird was wounded, and it, it still managed to get back to the artillery positions, and they shot off the, uh, the fire. And that bird is actually on display at the Smithsonian. You know, this bullet-riddled, you know, taxidermied carrier pigeon is on display. See, like, who who needs the Twilight Zone when the actual story has stuff like that in it? You know, like, that's amazing. But this that, that, that story in the comic was still really cool. I, I liked it. It felt very Twilight zone We were locked right in. This did not feel like a lazy, hack-job licensed comic book. That being said, I'll, I'll just hit this quick before we jump into the next story. There's a text piece based on a true story coming up next called The Ghost in the Drifting Tomb. It's about the capsized vessel, the Ernt. It's E-R-N-D-T-E with art by Joe Serta. And Rich has a little killjoy for yeah, it. Yeah, the, 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 the story starts off with saying it was the last week of April of 1910. Yeah, well, the story it actually happened in 1903. So again, you gotta love the, the instances where right off the bat, they're getting it wrong. Other than that, it, yeah, it's the story of this. Um, it was up in the Baltic, off the northern coast of Germany. And this ship came across this uh, capsized vessel, and they came alongside, and they're you know trying to figure out you know what it is. And they keep thinking they hear like a pounding noise on the hull, so they're like, you know, is it haunted? What the hell is this? You know, so they they tie some ropes around it, they they tow it in to the closest port, and they keep hearing like pounding noises. So they cut a hole into the hull, and lo and behold, there was a survivor that had been trapped below decks when the ship had capsized in, um, in a storm. Hans Engelant, he was the skipper, and he'd been below decks for three weeks. You know, there was, you know, just enough fresh water, just enough food for him to survive. And he was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And the guy just locked out. There's a ship that came by and you heard the pounding and they, he survived. And it's, this is a true story. So that's kind of Twilight Zone-ish, you know, in and of itself so again truth uh is fitting right, right in right in yeah, right in with the twilight zone theme here it's just they hardly need the help so after that we jump into the next uh next actual comic book story in this issue it's called birds of a feather 
with the returning art team of Mike Sikowski and Mike Pepe. It's a nine pager. We're going to do the synopsis. I'll read it, but we're going to have Rich do, like we should mention, um, each of these stories has a uh, little Rod Serling, a little comic book Rod Serling in the first and final panel doing his, his narration bit. So we're going to have Rich do the first panel and the last panel, and I'll read the synopsis in between. Okay. Hard driving J.P. Grunch, president of Grunch Products, keeps after his employees like a hawk. But sometimes, even a hawk will find itself in trouble when, as the old adage, birds of a feather flock together. Right on. And so we open the scene with Miss Twilby entering Mr. Grunch's office after he's buzzed her. He wants her to take a letter, but first shoes away the pigeons that are constantly cooing on his windowsill. Miss Twilby gently talks to the birds and encourages them to leave. Grunch is still peeved and is convinced someone is feeding the birds. He has Twilby draft a memo to be posted that anyone caught feeding the pigeons will be fired. The other employees think the memo is petty. Turns out Twilby is the one feeding the pigeons, and Mr. Grunch arrives at the office early and catches her in the act. Before she can explain, he swings his cane at the birds to scatter them. Turning to her, he gives her two weeks' notice. You've been a good secretary, but you disobeyed my order. I can't make an exception even for you. By the way, work has piled up, so you and I will have to stay late tonight. So that yeah, dick move, you're fired and you're working late. It's also a precursor to... Uh, the movie office space with Lumberg saying, yeah, Peter, uh, it's going to be a, a full day over the weekend. Yeah. So this is like, it's like, yeah, proto Lumberg. Uh, return- 40 years. <laughs> yeah. Or more. Let's see. So returning from dinner, Grunch is shocked to discover his office filled with pigeons. Twilby is sitting in his chair and smiles. Don't be alarmed, Mr. Grunch. Come right in. Now, our meeting can begin. Still shooing the birds, he demands an explanation. Twilby reveals that the birds are her friends and that she is their spokesperson in the world of humans. You have been very cruel to my friends and myself. We have gathered here to make certain it doesn't happen again. Grunch huffs how crazy this is and turns to leave. Twilby warns him not to go, but he ignores her. She coos and the birds swarm Grunch, forcing him into a chair. She talks to him, revealing he had broken the wing of one of Waldo's flock that morning with his cane. Usually, they convert pigeon haters into pigeon lovers simply by talking. But Grunch is a special case. He can never be allowed to harm a pigeon again. The next morning, an employee delivers the mail to Mr. Grunch and is shocked to discover him happily feeding the pigeons. The news sweeps through the office about JB's sudden change of heart. When quitting time comes, Miss Twilby says it was time for Mr. Grunch's lesson. Two of the office executives arrive at her desk to talk to her and hear a cooing noise coming from the open intercom. Entering Grunch's office, they discover two pigeons sitting on his desk with two abandoned pairs of eyeglasses before them. Strange they both should have forgotten them today, one of the execs remarks as he shoes the birds out the window. They're both so nearsighted. And then we have Rod coming in for the final panel. Two nearsighted people disappear and leave their glasses behind. Coincidence? Perhaps. On the other hand, have you ever seen pigeons wearing glasses? And go right into, into Killjoy was here, and it's not applicable because it's the Twilight Zone. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, not much you can you can kill Joy on this one unless you knew a lot about the uh, the clothes or, or stuff that should be in a 1960s office. <laughs> like if you unless you, you were a like long a model of intercom on the desk. Yeah, <laughs> unless you were like one of the showrunners for the Mad Men show, there's not much you can do with that. So uh, comments and commendations here. I kept expecting a gorier and less fantastical ending to this one. Like maybe Grunch would have been led to fall out of his own office window while the birds were blinding him or something like that. Uh, When I got to the actual ending, I still wanted the one that I thought I'd seen coming instead. Uh, The art was still very well done. I particularly dug the the big office scene on page two, panel three. Again, Sikowski just really makes this look realistic and believable. Everyone's got natural body language. For all I know, this is a very accurate period piece. So probably not period at the time, but for me, it's a very accurate look at a 1960s office space. So I really like the art. The, the ending is still cool. I just was expecting something a little more gruesome, but maybe that says more about me than the unnamed writer of this story. Yeah, you actually got it pretty good. I mean, I'm looking at that panel right now. You can see like the, you know, the, this one uh, female secretary, she's got like the beehive hairdo and the, and one of the execs is leaning on the water cooler with that tiny little paper cup talking to his buddy and <laughs> everything else. So it's, that's probably what 1963 office life was like. So I could see this one on TV, but personally it was the weakest of the three. Still a good yarn though. Mr. Grunch, man, that name just screams tyrant, doesn't it? <laughs> like he's going to deserve everything that's about to happen to him. I like the panel where he's being swarmed by the pigeons. It's like something on the Hitchcock. The birds! The birds! Yeah, again, the art is just great in these first two stories uh, right away. And Mr. Grunch, I just I just now realized he's a mean one, Mr. Grunch. Mr. Grunch. <laughs> <laughs> How, How did you- <laughs> I didn't think of that until right now. <laughs> and this, and dude, I got to agree with you. As soon as you said he's a mean one, I instantly knew where you were going. With that. <laughs> That's Christmas how much of three it. Months yeah. away, folks. Actually, by the time this issue airs, Christmas will probably be like two weeks away. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be like around Thanksgiving. This is going to come out. So we're in the holiday spirit a little early here on the Weird Warriors podcast. Um, yeah, but that that just hit me. That's how much of a tunnel that my comic book reading brain lives in. That I was just like, Grunch, right? Got it. That's his name. I'm moving on. And now it hits me. So. That was, it was a cool, if, if that's, that's, that's happened to us a couple of times. I mean, you read the comic, you're writing the script, you're doing the blah, 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 blah. blah. And then when we're sitting down recording it, it's like, like, oh, wait, there's, I got something else like right there, right now. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's one of the reasons to do this. Like, you know, even just how this is, this whole show is about recreating the, the activity of you and me sitting, reading comics, chatting about them with a drink you know, back in the college days. And it's because to me, half of comic book reading, maybe reading in general, but especially comics for me is social. It, it's emergent. It's like you, you realize new stuff when you get together and talk about it. So that, that it sounds corny, but that's how I really am about comics. You know, to me, they're, uh, they're this, they're this living art form that this keeps changing the more you interact with it. And This is just one example of that. And I'm sure if we came back to talk about this issue in a couple of years, we'd come up with other stuff that jumped out us, that jumped out at us and was new to us. So that's just all from one story about uh, office secretary turning her boss into a pigeon people. So this is, this is the kind of stuff that inspires me. So speaking of that, 
Speaking of inspiration, we're going to go to the cover story of this issue, and Rich is going to take this one away. Okay, it's called it's an eleven-page story. The Queen is dead. Long live the Queen. Pencils by the sky. We've heard talked about a couple of times. Alex Toth is in the house, ladies and gentlemen. Inks yet again by Mike Pepe. Beneath these shifting sands lie many ancient secrets. Sometimes it is better to let them remain buried, as Professor Craig will soon discover in the Twilight Zone. Professor Anton Craig, along with assistants Johnson and Miller, are leading a small archaeological expedition in the Egyptian desert when they are suddenly overtaken by a sandstorm. They hunker down and ride out the storm. When it abates, they discover the wind had uncovered a nearby stone wall. The entire party is quickly put to work unearthing what turns out to be a lost tomb. The professor is ecstatic. Craig finds a loose stone and they pry it off with a crowbar. The three men enter the tomb and start exploring by flashlight. A floor tile falls away and Johnson tumbles into the room beneath. Unhurt, he climbs out. The other two men slip by the pitfall and continue the exploration. The main chamber is discovered. While Craig's assistants admire the gold in the room, Craig is taken by the most beautiful freeze he'd ever seen. It's so lifelike. It feels like she could talk to him. Suddenly exhausted, he decides to return to the camp to rest. But that night in his tent, he's unable to sleep. Something is urging him to go back to the tomb. He slips away alone. And as soon as he enters the tomb, a slab drops down and seals him in. Forced to go deeper into the tomb, another slab drops behind him into the passageway. He has no choice but to keep going forward. Seeing a light ahead, he runs into the main chamber and is stunned to see the room filled with people dressed in ancient Egyptian garb. The woman who had been a freeze on the wall that morning greeted him. Welcome, bearded one. We have been expecting you. I am Sira, second wife of the great pharaoh Ramses. The professor exclaims, you've been dead 3,000 years. All of you were just figures on the wall this afternoon. We were sealed in here for eternity, she replies. But when you opened this tomb, you disturbed our final sleep. Believing he's going mad, Craig runs for the exit. Sirah laughs as another slab drops down and seals him in the chamber. She commands her guards to bring Craig before her. Believing he is a tomb robber, she sentences him to death. Craig explains he is a scientist who searches for things of the past so his people can learn about her people. This amuses her, and she decides to have refreshments and entertainment. Craig is given grapes to eat, and dancers and musicians perform for the queen and her guest. But eventually, time runs out, and it was time to return. Surat orders the guards to bring along Craig, who begs her to let him go. I'll go back to my camp, close the tomb, and never return. But it was too late. The gods had sent him there and they must be appeased. On the surface, Johnson and Miller tire of waiting for Craig and enter the tomb without him. It's curious, there seems to be one more figure in the freeze than there had been the day before, but that was impossible. It looks just like Professor Craig, and it's so lifelike. It's almost like he wants to talk to us. Professor Anton Craig, man of science, wanted to explore the past. Now he is trapped there forever in the Twilight Zone. So, Killjoy was here, not applicable. It's the Twilight Zone. That said, while there is no record of any of Ramsey's wives being named Sirha, the second was named Setnofret, butchered that, but whatever. And good thing she speaks English, eh? 
And, you know, just, you know, full disclosure, I mean, I, I do want to admit it's easy for me to play Killjoy on all these podcasts when all I have to do is fire up good old Wikipedia and nitpick all the things the creative team got wrong in five minutes flat. I'm old enough to remember all the time spent flipping through encyclopedias in the pre-internet era when I had to do the research. And so often I couldn't find the information I was looking for. So I honestly thank all the creators for their efforts. But this is a popular segment of the show. So I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep being a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The arm is being twisted. So twisted. And, and believe me, uh, Rich. Uh, yeah. I, I remember you from those days of doing the research by hand. So I, I've seen it in person, folks. So also, um, you, you uh, added this to the script here. Sroth threatens to feed the prof to the cat or the jackal. That jackal is obviously drawn to be the leopard from the cover in one panel. And then in the very next panel, it appears and it's like someone slid toth a note and boom, instant jackal. <laughs> That's oh, yeah. on you. I, I hadn't noticed that. I forgot so. I wrote that part in. But yeah, it's it's very, very apparent. Like um, it's one animal in one panel and it's very much another one in the next. It's like he just went, I'm not redrawing that. I'll move forward with the jackal. Fine. <laughs> this one is the one that reminded me the most of an episode you might have seen on the classic TV show. A little Toth art we remember him from his Weird War work was a nice find. Really like this one too. My favorite panels are the first exploration one. But there's there's this cross hatching and the initial discovery of the chamber, the way the flashlights light up the freeze in three circles of light. It's a really good touch. Yeah, like you said, we got we got Alex Toth in the house, which is amazing. And again, just blowing away that that general impression I've always found out there that the gold key or the Dell and gold key books had bad art. This is two great stories by Sikowski and then Toth is bringing up the rear. I mean, who knows? Maybe we just picked up the coolest looking issue of Twilight Zone ever, but I doubt it. I will say though, I want to know what's up with those bold color stripes in between mm. the otherwise borderless panels. The other two stories have borderless panels and they weren't saddled with this nonsense. They're just ugly. And I know that a genius designer like Toth didn't ask for them to be there. Th that being said, as, as you said, this is the best story in the book easily with a nice classic feel and Toth art. And uh, remember how you said that cover gave you Johnny Quest vibes? Well, here we have Alex Toth on art for this story, and Toth was instrumental in designing the Johnny Quest show. So it's no accident that that gave you those vibes. Heathen monkeys. <laughs> Heathen monkeys, indeed. Hang on. Raise a glass to the, the Heathen monkeys. monkeys. There we go. It's I mean, uh, something we've, we've made a passing comment about that in the past. Uh, one of the um, episodes where uh, Dr. Quest and one of his buddies got kidnapped by some uh, jungle dwellers and race painted himself purple and hopped out of the river to try to act like one of their pagan river gods. And he called them heathen monkeys. Or, or, and um, yeah, the uh, edited for TV versions, uh, you just see the race's lips like... <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we found that out because i got the dvd of johnny quest and was all psyched that i went all high tech and it turns out the dvd episodes are altered for certain reasons which makes sense but they're altered nonetheless and you know i'm showing it off to rich and he's like ha, 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 and runs downstairs and gets his vhs copy that hasn't <laughs> and rubs it in my face so heathen monkeys is just something that is going to come up that's for the rest of our, our lives. That's one of our in-jokes. Yep. So Yeah, so of course, it's Toth. Every panel looks great. I will, however, call out page four, 
panels three, four, and five, the shift in perspective as one of the explorers falls down through the trap door. That shift is just perfectly executed, drawing the reader's eye through the action just the way it should. Again, Toth is a master of the craft, and there's no way he's responsible for those weird color stripes between the panels. I just yeah. don't get that. Yeah, we'll, 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 there'll be, uh, there'll be uh, photos of some of the panels in question that we're talking about here. And just by default, you'll see what they're talking about. Throughout the whole story, it, it'll be like these green fill stripes or these yellow fill stripes throughout the story. And I, it's just like Max says, I don't get it. Why are they there? <laughs> you didn't do that to the other two stories. Why'd you do it to this one? <laughs> yeah, it's not like we're dealing with really confusing panel layouts. Like the one thing that is a strike against Toth in this, and maybe it's just Gold Key's policy. These are very boring page layouts. They're just big, blocky panels, nothing interesting going on in the page layout. So they don't even need the help of, of a border helping you figure out what's going on. It's just, it's just madness. Yeah. You, you, you flip through the story and it's four, you know, like two by two panels and then one, you know, two by six on every page. It, 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 they vary where, you know, you know, they vary the layout, but it's the same, you know, two and one on each page of the story. Yeah, so. there's definitely a template being used here. So so that's that the, the cover story really just sealed the deal. I'm glad they saved it for the end. The first two stories were good. This one absolutely knocks it out of the park. And then after that, we get the follow-up to Keys of Knowledge, Roads and Vehicles, number six. So wasn't the first one number three and this one's number six? Uh, yes, yes it was. So, so are these like, gotta catch them all? So apparently... <laughs> So this one's The Roman Road, art by Jack Sparling. It's five panels describing how the Romans built roads. And it's it's, it's pretty cool. I, I just say, like, for some reason, now I when I look at this and, it, you know, I, there's the first part and this part, I can't stop thinking about all those Hope and Crosby road to such and such movies. But it, it, was, it was neat to see little kind of educational pieces bookending the twilight zone comic i thought i thought it was kind of cool i hope i kind of hope stuff like this is in the rest of these issues or at least a lot of them because uh, they're as we'll get to in last words i'm gonna be acquiring more of these comics so uh we have a note here that normally we talk about a letters page and spotlight our favorite ads in the story this book has no letters page and no ads and that might very well have been standard in gold key books as i said i used to pick these up all the time as a kid I don't remember specifically, though, if they ever had ads or letters pages in them. So this one doesn't, though. So we're going to jump right on to our last words. And I'll, I'll kick it off here. This, as you may have picked up on for me, was enjoyable as all heck. As weak as the second story was, a weak in quotation marks there, it was still weird enough to make me like it anyway. Miss Twilby is not to be messed with. Creepy stuff with her. That scene with her in the chair and when, when she's in Mr. Grunch's chair. <sighs> so I, I would love to cover more issues of this series in the future. I'm going to go on a hunt for more issues just in case, just for fun anyway. And as I said, I, I grew up on a lot of gold key books like Turok, Son of Stone, and many more. They were everywhere. You could find these things in grocery stores. I mean, comics were in more places when we were growing up. But gold key books were in these three-pack bags. They were, you just couldn't get away from them. So I had a ton of books by this company growing up. So getting back into this stuff, especially how much I enjoy the painted covers and everything, this could be pretty, pretty dangerous for me. 
Yeah, it's like, I'm hoping by the time this podcast is aired, I'll have found the time to go to Rod Serling's grave and take pictures of the album, which is only a few hours away from here, Lakeview Cemetery, Interlochen, in New York, in the Finger Lakes area. Serling was only 50 years old when he died, and his five-pack-a-day smoking habit, no doubt sped him on his way. I mean, this is this is the pre-filter era, folks. I mean, my God. I mean, if this man was awake, he must have been smoking. A paratrooper in the Pacific in World War II, he was seriously wounded in combat against the Japanese and suffered nightmare flashbacks for the rest of his life. One can easily imagine where so many of the story ideas for the show came from. Writing 92 of the show's 156 episodes. Remember that movie, Planet of the Apes? Guess who? Just like Lee Marvin, Rod could have had an elaborate headstone that reflected an outstanding Hollywood career. Instead, both were content to be buried under a simple Veterans Administration marker. I hope you found peace. I have more Twilight Zones, so let us know if you want more Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, this book in particular came from my grandparents' attic, and it belonged to either my dad or one of my uncles. They must have been in high school, at least. Awesome book. For me, Last Battle just is, was my favorite story. It just narrowly, narrowly edges out Queen of the Dead. I mean, me and Max are an opinion of this, you know. Pigeons, third place. Bye, get out of here. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the bookends were, were the ones that carried this story. I carried this book. Yeah, they're, the, those other two stories are great. It's just for me, the Alex Toth and the Egyptian theme. And as you mentioned, the Johnny Quest vibes just nostalgia me right over the finish line by a hair. So we skipped on letters and ads because we had to. But one thing we will do is visit the Dead Letter Office, where we talk about people who liked commented on or shared our previous episodes so in this visit to the dead letter office we're talking about episode eight which covered weird war tales number eight featuring the first all original stories in the series and we got likes and so forth over on twitter from packed cells from iowa's joe crawford from Corey devorkin chris at bto and bat books from Kirk Spencer, Western Comics Owl Hoot, Mr. At Big Five Army, who's been with us since the start, uh, Jeffrey Brown, and Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Chris Lydon, FP Glasgow, Professor Frenzy of the Professor Frenzy Show, which is which is great, and there's going to be a string of these coming. Doc Strange, which is Billy Delicious of Into the Weird, The Long Box of Darkness, the A World on Fire, All-Star Squadron podcast, Huge fan of him and Herman shows on that network. We got Luke Giaconetti from the Earth Destruction Directive, the giant monster movie and TV series podcast, which I love. A comment from Iowa's Joe Crawford saying, they totally still make Pez. And while my kids not be, may, may not be representative, they do like them. And I, I say confirmation from the field. So Pez yeah. dispensers are out there. <laughs> And uh, Luke chimes in. Luke Jack and Andy says, can't wait to listen. You know, I just mentioned to Luke that we recorded that, that episode way back in April. So it's funny to hear Rich and I talking about having just barely created a Twitter account and a Facebook page and all that. Like all that was still like just sort of a draft when we did that. And over on Facebook, we got a like from my buddy down in Florida, Ken Boutillier creator of the awesome independent comic Zendagi that I talk about a lot over on my Max Reads Comics blog. 
over on wordpress.com. And uh, again, self-plug, self-plug, <laughs> self-plug. Be one of the almost dozen people who read my comics blog. <laughs> and, um, so, and just at the end here, a reminder, people, our Facebook page, Rich does a ton of work on as far as like loading photos up there. If you want visual reference to go with these episodes, Rich not only creates photo albums on the Facebook page for the show over there, but he updates them over time, adds more things to them. Uh, he, he really does a lot of work over there. I run the Twitter account, which, you know, Twitter with pictures, you can only put up four at a time and all that and plus you know i'm me so uh, I'm, I'm a little more scatterbrained and i gotta do all the editing so hey facebook page has tons of awesome pictures and stuff on it so get over there check out the pictures hit like throw rich a comment let him know he's not alone and speaking of alone send us some some uh send something to the weird warriors podcast at gmail.com i keep i keep sweeping out and dusting that inbox and and nobody comes to visit so so i'd like to get some email over there if you want to send an old-fashioned email we got an address just for you well thought out emails (laughs) yes (laughs) well thought out constructive emails (laughs) so Next time around, we're going back to Weird War Tales with issue 14. It's going to be World War II and the Pacific and the ghosts are on our side. (laughs) (laughs) So there we go, people. That is another special mission completed. That's Twilight Zone number three from 1963 from Gold Key Comics. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. I have been Max. I am still rich. And we are the Weird Warriors. We are on a special mission to make war. No more.